Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And Donald Trump orders former White House uh, counsel Don McGahn not to testify in front of Congress. Whoa, man. He really does want those impeachment hearings to begin. What do you say, folks? Happy Tuesday. It is Tuesday, May 21. This is the Bill Press Show. Here we go. Great to see you today. Good to have you on board as we uh, take off here for the next two hours to uh, romp through the headlines of the day, the news of the day, all the uh, ongoing events of the day, and then take a look at them, whether they're happening here in Washington, D.C., around the country or around the globe, analyze them, tear them apart, and give you a chance to respond as to what you think about what's going on, all the latest twists and turns in a very busy news cycle, you know how to do so. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Beautiful spring weather we are enjoying here in Washington. Uh, Donald Trump leaving Washington yesterday to go up to Montoursville, Pennsylvania, which is pure Trump country. But he sees a big threat there from Joe Biden and from the Democrats. Having carried Pennsylvania in 2016 by a fluke, he doesn't want to lose it this time and has a little rear guard action because he was afraid that uh, Joe Biden might sweep back into his home state and take it away from him. We'll tell you all about that rally last night, about all the other news of the day. And again, look forward to hearing from you and your comments on the news of the day, as always, on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Lots coming up, but first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, remember? Yes. It was about this time yesterday that I told you that Nigel Farage had managed to convince McDonald's to stop selling milkshakes around his event that he was having yesterday. Right, And yeah. McDonald's agreed. They, yeah, no milkshakes nearby. Well, not at McDonald's. 
Oh. But one protester got a milkshake from Five Guys and doused Nigel Farage with a milkshake Whoa. while he was walking around town yesterday. Pardon, you buried the lead. There are Five Guys in London? Oh, yeah. They're worldwide, no. man. Oh, no. they're everywhere. Whoa. Yeah, Five Guys is everywhere. They're like a global thing now. Oh. And the guy went and got a, just to be clear, because we care about the facts here, <laughs> a salted caramel and banana milkshake oh. that he then threw all over Nigel Farage. You know what? That's a camera. good one because that's got a lot of sticky stuff in exactly. it. Exactly. It's going to yeah. be really hard to get out of that suit. Ooh. And he had it all over him. He had it all over him. They immediately whisked Nigel Farage away. The guy who threw the milkshake was arrested, later seen in handcuffs. Uh, but Nigel Farage immediately was whisked away to the car. Not after, not until, uh, or not before, I should say, everybody got good pictures of him wearing a milkshake suit. Pretty good. Yeah, I, I'd be careful. I, I love that idea. I hope that idea like comes to this country, but... sure. You got to be careful. Look, right. you're going to get in trouble if you throw a milkshake on a politician. Yeah, you should right. be ready for that. But also, how about an attorney general? <laughs> <laughs> Not elected. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's see what happens. Assault by milkshake. I don't know how they treat you in prison if that's what you go to to prison for. Uh, all right, let's talk some sports. We haven't talked a lot of NBA playoffs this season, but we have one team. On their way to the finals, the Golden State Warriors beat the Portland Trail Blazers uh. in overtime last night, 119 to 117, which means that they swept the Trail Blazers and they are yet again going to the NBA Finals. An absolute dominant reign for the Warriors. Mm. Uh, they will be facing the winners of the Milwaukee Bucks Toronto Raptors series, which is currently two games to one in the favor of the Milwaukee Bucks. Milwaukee, huh? Yeah. So because the Warriors, just, they're just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, this is when yeah. I was a kid. You had Jordan and the Bulls, and now yeah. it's like yeah. Steph Curry, everybody, <laughs> and the and the Warriors. They're freakishly good. This is the Bill Press Show. And our federal judge yesterday hands Donald Trump his first big defeat in the his ongoing war with Congress. A judge ruling in Washington, D.C. that Donald Trump absolutely must turn over the financial records to the House Oversight Committee. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the Bill Press Show on a Tuesday, Tuesday, May 21, 2019. Good to see you today on the radio. Good to see you on television. Good to see you online. Lots of ha lots happening here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe. That's why we're here with you to take a look at all that's going on and uh, give you a chance to comment on it as well. We'll tell you what's happening. You tell us what it means to you and to your family and to your community. As we join you... Online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, go to BillPressShow.com and sign up for our podcast um, so you got, you know subscribe to the podcast. So you're not only part of this ongoing Bill Press Show, but we'll be part of the new version, the new look of The Bill Press Show, coming first week of June on the podcast form, not on this daily two hours every morning. BillPressShow.com, sign up for the podcast and follow us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. 
Good to see you on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and all over Chicago, where the new mayor of Chicago was sworn in yesterday, Laurie Lightfoot, stepping in, replacing Rahm Emanuel after two terms, and Laurie Lightfoot bringing new hope, new change, new look to the city of new energy to the city of Chicago. And we're joining you, of course, on television on the free speech, great free speech TV, America's only, only 24-7 progressive TV channel. We always uh, tell you about that. Now, we got lots of big news to talk about, but this is every once in a while I see these little nuggets in the news that just spark my interest. And uh, this is something I'm sure you did not know. I did not know until I saw this little little note in the New York Times this morning. I'm sure Peter Ogburn didn't know it either, right? right Peter, You're we probably re- right. We remember you the, can fill an ocean with the things I don't know. We remember the dinosaurs, right? Yo, of course. Yeah, like 100 million years. I mean, years. I wasn't around for it. No, I, I, I exactly. I'm, I'm aware of them. And kind of we know what happened to them, right? It didn't turn out so well. Right. Well, guess what, guess what was around before dinosaurs and are uh, still around today? Bernie Sanders. <laughs> ah. <laughs> no, sorry, that was... What, what? Bed bugs. No, really? Yeah. I, I was going to say cockroaches. Well, but... I was going to think cockroaches, but I never thought about bed bugs. Recent published findings confirm studies, scientific studies, that bed bugs originated at least 100 million years ago when dinosaurs roamed the Earth. And that asteroid asteroid rather came, came down, hit the Yucatan Peninsula, and wiped, you know, Wiped out the dinosaurs worldwide. Bed bugs. Yeah, you didn't survived. get the bug. Bed bug. No, and there's no kidding. Yeah, there they are, and they're still there, right? So if you have bed bugs, you're basically uh, you have dinosaurs. <laughs> if you think of it that way. Well, now, the problem with the bed bugs is they're so itchy, <laughs> and the T Rex they have such short arms they can't scratch. That's, that's the real why, problem. That's kind of what it is. Or maybe what what happened was. That the uh, the cloud from the asteroids, or whatever that you know that yeah, it it, for, for, it didn't kill the dinosaurs; it shrunk them. Uh, oh, oh, oh! I didn't think about that. Uh huh. I didn't think about that. This is just, they're just dinosaurs in a new form. Yeah, just tiny dinosaurs. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> How about? We'll let the scientists explain that. But <laughs> right, just next time. So you know. Um, Show a little respect for the bed bugs next time. You, <laughs> you yeah. check it. You check into a motel and you find yourself scratching a little bit. Of all Just of say. your of all of your problematic stances, <laughs> pro bed bugs <laughs> might be the one that gets you in the most trouble. Indeed. All right. Yeah. Where do we start today? We start with a big story of the day, which is yesterday. The White House they escalated the battle. Over uh, in the White House, the battle between the executive branch and the congressional branch, we've been talking about it for the last few days, uh, Donald Trump, uh, the White House it said that they were not going to cooperate, uh, no way, no how, with any of the House oversight committees or investigations, uh, meaning no financial documents, no records, no tax returns, not even any witnesses allowed to testify. Well, they um, came through on that yesterday, today. Former White House counsel Don McGahn was uh, slated to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. As a private citizen, um, he can do so. It's really his choice. But the Department of Justice issued a ruling or uh, a memo advising him uh, not to testify 
because uh, the conversations that he had with the president when he was White House counsel were, they said, uh, subject to executive privilege, that they could legitimately claim executive privilege. Uh, the White House yesterday, on the eve of his testimony, uh, told Don McGahn they wanted him, uh, basically ordered him, to comply with the Department of Justice memorandum, meaning not to testify. And McGahn's attorneys turned around and informed the House Judiciary Committee he would not show up today. Uh, they planned to still have a hearing like they did when Bill Barr did not show up. Attorney General Bill Barr did not show up last week. But the seat will be empty. McGahn will not be there. I wonder if, remember Steve Cohen brought the chicken. He brought the, the chicken bar. Remember that? He had like yeah, a little uh, plastic yes. chicken he brought and a KFC bucket. I wonder if they'll do that for McGahn. You know what? Um, he might. Got to do it. Yeah. Bring Stick in to the, the bit. Bring in the bucket of a, yeah, they could make a whole thing about this, Commit right? to the bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, last night uh, with uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN said, uh, not surprised in a sense, this is all part of this pattern of uh, not cooperating with Congress. This is part of the pattern of, you know, of, of, of the president and, and Rudy Giuliani and uh, the White House generally intimidating McGahn um, from testifying, acting lawlessly to, protect, to prevent him from testifying about the obstructions of justice, which he testified to. Uh, the presence of obstructions of justice, which he testified to by Mueller. So you're dealing with a lawless president who is willing to go to any lengths to prevent testimony uh, that might implicate him. And, of course, uh, this is not, uh, obviously, as Jerry Nadler says, part of a pattern. Um, and maybe deliberately on Donald Trump's part, trying to go Democrats to the point where if he doesn't cooperate, I mean, if he continues not to cooperate, he could not cooperate to the extent that he drives Democrats into opening impeachment hearings. Congressman David Cicilline, our good friend from Rhode Island, uh, the Rhode Island's uh, one of two members of Congress, uh, said yesterday um, that if they continue uh, to ignore Congress or rebut Congress like this, uh, you just can't tolerate that. We have a president that is actively trying to cover up and prevent the American people from getting to the truth, and that's not something I think we can tolerate. Can't tolerate it. In fact, he says the McGahn thing, this could be McGahn's refusal uh, under following White House orders. And again, I want to report, McGahn as a private citizen could t testify. He doesn't have to follow what the White House says. He chooses to. Um, and the point about that is, as many Democrats have said, What's the big deal? What they want to ask him about, he's already testified about to Robert Mueller. It's already in the Mueller report that Don McGahn told Mueller on two different occasions. Donald Trump called him at home, remember, and ordered him to fire Robert Mueller. He said Robert Mueller has a conflict. That conflict, by the way, which I still find very amusing, is that Mueller at one time belonged to one of Donald Trump's golf clubs. Uh, and so that was supposedly, according to Mueller, <coughs> according to Don McGahn, Donald Trump said it was sufficient reason that Mueller should be fired. Ordered McGahn to do that. McGahn refused, and instead he tests again. This is all in the Mueller report. 
he came to the White House and packed up his bags and went and told Reince Priebus he was leaving because he would not do that. You know what? He had a phrase for it uh, that Donald Trump had asked him to do. That happened on two different occasions. So this is all out there. What the House wants to do is to get that on the record in front of Congress under oath. Uh, so, again, back to David Cicilline, who says, you know, the McGahn thing for his refusal to testify, the White House is keeping him away from Congress, could be the straw that breaks the impeachment camel's back. I think we are getting to that point. If Mr. McGahn does not appear, it will then establish a pattern from this president to not only have obstructed or attempted to obstruct justice, as detailed in the Mueller report, but an ongoing effort to prevent the American people from knowing the full truth, engaging in a cover-up, and behaving as if he's above the law. Right. And uh, Cicilline goes on to say, so uh, this could mean that we they have no choice, Democrats have no choice, but to begin impeachment hearings, which she said is the, would just be the beginning of the process, not the end of, not impeachment itself. They may not even lead to an impeachment vote, but at least you get the facts out. An impeachment inquiry is simply the formal beginning of a process to make a determination as to whether or not articles of impeachment should be voted upon. And meanwhile, as we discussed yesterday, Justin Amash, congressman from uh, Michigan, Republican congressman from Michigan. Uh, check out my column today in The Hill, by the way, on Justin Amash at thehill.com, or we'll put it up, we'll put it out uh, ourselves uh, to all of you who do subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Twitter. Another reason for doing so. Um, Justin Amash uh, back in Washington yesterday, uh, pounced upon by reporters. Uh, and he's the first Republican congressman, remember, uh, who came forward and said he read the full Mueller report. And his conclusion is, reading the Mueller report, that Donald Trump committed acts that that reached the threshold of impeachment. Therefore, impeachment hearings should begin uh, everybody expected Justin Amash because he got so much heat from Donald Trump, called him a loser, called him a lightweight. Kevin McCarthy said he was just trying to get his name in the paper, bum, 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 people piling on him. No other Republicans joined him. And so in typical fashion with most of these spineless creatures, uh, we sort of expected Justin Amash to back down yesterday a little bit and say, well... You know, I, I yeah. definitely expected him to back down. Uh-uh. He did not. No, he stood firm. Of course, uh, this is a guy who's, as I mentioned yesterday, he has stood up to Donald Trump and to his party before. By the way, he's a big conservative vote. Don't think he's some raging liberal. Um, but he was. He earned the nickname of Mr. No when he was actually in the Michigan legislature. So he's got a little reputation for being a contrarian. Good for him. Uh Reporters caught up with him yesterday and said, basically, uh, like you you ready to you ready to back down. I mean, Kevin McCarthy said that you were just trying to get attention. What do you say? What do you have to feel about uh, McCarthy saying that you vote more times with uh, Nancy Pelosi than you do Republicans? Well, I think everyone knows he's lying. That's <laughs> that's typical, Kevin. And when you say you're going to review impeachment proceedings, it's a process. What do you exactly mean by that? Well, it's a process. It's not like the uh, resolution is just drawn up uh, overnight. It's it's a process, and you have to uh, come to the right conclusions about how to draft something. But you would like to see them start at some point. I think it's appropriate to do so. Yep, 
Kevin McCarthy is a liar, and we should start the impeachment process. So I mean, not, not backing down at all. Not, yeah. not even a little bit. No, I mean, he didn't no. water his comments down at all. And I have to say, like, he is not a guy that we should idolize or, or even you know, look to for any kind of real leadership, right? He's got a lot of terrible ideas. He's part of the. He's like one of the founding members was, of the Freedom wh- Caucus, fa- right? That which I find really stunning. Yeah, that they're the extreme right of the party. Most mem- most of whom, starting with Mark Meadows, who's now head of the Freedom Caucus, just suck up to Donald Trump. What? But Amash is a real yeah. conservative in the sense that he knows a lot of the stuff Donald Trump is doing is anti-basic conservative principles. That, that's it. That's it. I mean, yeah. look, I, I think everything that he's done, all of his work that he's done is, for the most part, very, very bad. Uh, but I'll give him credit. And we, we've had to do this with Rand Paul a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. You give them credit when they're right. And they are, they've sort of billed themselves as we're going to do the right thing. We're not going to be beholden to the party or anything like that. And this is one of those examples. And absolutely you should be commended for it. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to change anything. We'll have to see. <laughs> but it could. Now, it on could. this on this front, there was a major development yesterday. Uh, and remember, this is all in the context. We're talking about everything we just talked about with uh, Don McGahn, with Justin Amash, uh, with what came out of the Mueller report, is this ongoing war now. Uh, some call it, and I believe it is, a constitutional crisis, the executive defying everything that Congress is trying to do. I mean, the Senate's doing nothing, so we're really talking about Congress, the White House defying the House of Representatives and their effort to get at the truth. All right, we know all these decisions about they don't have to testify, they don't have to turn over documents, they can declare an executive, um, I mean, make an executive declaration, emergency declaration to build a wall, um, all of that, they don't have to turn over tax returns. Uh, All of that is going to end up in the courts. Some of it already is. And particularly... In the courts, one of the first challenges was that uh, Congressman Elijah Wright, who's chair, uh, Elijah Cummings, sorry, who is chair of the House Oversight Committee, issued a subpoena to two financial firms asking for the financial records, their financial records of Donald Trump's business records for the last, I think it was six or 10 years. Uh, The White House said, the White House sued, remember, one of them is Mazars USA, one of the financial firms, uh, and the White House sued, and the Trump family sued these financial firms to prevent their turning over the records, to prevent their answering the subpoena from Congress, from the House Oversight Committee. Yesterday, a federal judge ruled on that. These things move fast if you're talking about the White House, and executive privilege. A federal judge yesterday, Judge Amit Mehta, U.S. District Judge here in Washington, D.C., said that Congress is right and the White House is wrong and said that Mazars USS today, USA, rather, Mazars USA, has to turn over these financial records. And the judge made a very, very strong ruling yesterday. He said it is unfathomable. Unfathomable was the word he used. 
that Congress, which has the authority to remove the president from office by impeachment, does not have the right to investigate him. And that's what the White House is saying. That's what Bill Barr is saying. That's what the White House attorneys like Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani are saying, Giuliani, that Congress can't investigate the president. They can't issue subpoenas. They can't get anybody to testify. And this judge yesterday basically said, you're out of your mind. You're freaking crazy. He said it's just on the face of it. If Congress has the right to remove a president from office by impeachment, they've got a right to investigate him. I got to tell you, it makes sense to me. I mean, I think it's a no-brainer. But the White House says they're going to appeal that decision. On his way out of the White House yesterday up to Pennsylvania, Donald Trump, of course, uh, stopped, talked to reporters, and uh, said uh, attacked the decision, basically saying, blaming it on the Democrats. If you look, uh, you know, we had no collusion, we had no obstruction, we had no nothing. The Democrats were very upset with the Mueller report, as perhaps they should be. But, I mean, the country is very happy about it because it was never anything like that. Yeah, I mean, he keeps saying no collusion, no obstruction. Yeah, Justin Amash said, that's, he's the latest to say, that's not what the report says. I've read the report. Justin Amash has read the report. There's tons of collusion. Uh documented in the report. There's tons of obstruction of justice. But again, Donald Trump trying to change the subject. And he said, again, that the Democrats, what they're trying to do is, well, he sort of tries to say they want a do-over. We disagree with that ruling. It's crazy because uh, you look at it. This never happened to any other president. They're trying to get a redo. <laughs> yeah, right. They're trying to get what we used to call in school a do-over. A do-over. <laughs> a do-over. <laughs> yeah, this never this never happened to any other president. Oh no, no other pre- no other administration has been investigated by Congress. Nope, never been yeah. happened. Yeah. Never happened before. Never been an impeachment hearing ever before. Right. Yeah, and how about 25 hearings on Benghazi or Hillary's email? Right. I mean, it's just right. ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it's just, I don't know why anybody takes them seriously about anything at all. Uh, but anyway, the judge most important point is this judge's decision is a big deal and a big blow to the Trump administration. And I think it just proves that they're going to lose every one of these of these battles. Uh, and so where was the president heading on Marine One? Over to Joint Base Andrews uh, to hop on Air Force One and go up to Montoursville, Pennsylvania, where there is a special congressional election today um, where this uh, Republican candidate, Fred Keller, uh, th- this this is as Trump country as you can get. I think Donald Trump won this district by 36 points or something. Uh, the, uh, the Republican candidate did, and Donald Trump won that district in 2016. So it is red, red, red. It is total Trump country. But Donald Trump had to go up there today. This, there's no doubt the Republicans are going to win this seat today. Donald Trump did make it, not make any difference. He went up there for his own effort to make sure that Joe Biden doesn't make any inroads in Pennsylvania because Donald about uh, Joe Biden was up there on Saturday in his home state. Uh, and Donald Trump said, don't believe that Joe Biden loves you. Remember, he may have been born here, but Biden deserted you. He's not from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I guess he was born here, but he left you, folks. He yeah. left you for another state. Uh, yeah, he was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. His parents 
moved to Delaware so when funny. Joe Biden was 10. So, yeah, he deserted them. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's a 10-year-old. He's a man. That's the funniest thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Accusing it's so him funny. deserted <laughs> <laughs> uh, you. Yeah. yeah. I was like, Bill, kid. did you leave your childhood home? You deserted uh, Yeah. What would what, what have it have been, in the fourth grade, maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 He had a lot of say over it, I'm sure. Uh-uh, yeah. And he died. Uh, President <laughs> last night, he blamed everything, everything that's happening in Pennsylvania. He blamed it on Joe. This guy talks about, oh, I know Scranton. I know that. Well, I know the place is better. He left you for another state, and he didn't take care of you because he didn't take care of your jobs. Didn't take care of you. Moved to Delaware. Yeah, when he was ten years old, he should have been taking care of your jobs. Yeah, right. Moved to Delaware. We served in the Senate for thirty-six years. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> nice try. Nice try, Donald. Um, but while he's at it, he just, again, it was a rambling uh, campaign speech last night. But uh, he now, the latest obsession with Donald Trump, he's really, really pissed off at Fox News because they're putting too many Democrats on the air, he thinks, including Pete Buttigieg. So he admits that he watched, he watched the... Uh, the big town hall with Buttigieg on Fox with Chris Wallace uh, last last uh, Sunday night. Did you see this guy last night? I did want to watch. I, you always have to watch the competition, if you call it that. And he was knocking the hell out of Fox, and Fox has put him in. Somebody's going to have to explain the whole Fox deal to me. Uh, yeah. Why, Donald Trump says, why is Fox putting so many Democrats on? What's going on with Fox, by the way? What's going on there? Putting more Democrats on than you have Republicans. It's something strange is going on at Fox. Something very strange. Again, I love when he just takes the mask off and says the quiet part loud. I I want them to be pure propaganda. And the fact that they present an alternate uh, viewpoint. Put anybody else on. Put anybody else on the air. But me. This is supposed to be my channel. Right. Right. He thinks he runs the channel. Yeah. And I don't want them to cover anybody else with me or talk to anybody else with me. He did another interview on Fox last night, tweeted out, I'm going to be up with, with, with whatever. I mean, he owns the freaking channel, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. there's no doubt. So, by the way, um, the uh, Buddha judge did do this. Uh, I, I think it was correct to do so. Um, uh, uh, the town hall on Fox News. And um, how did it go? New York Times reporting this morning that there were 1.1 million viewers uh, for the Buttigieg Town Hall on Fox. Uh, Is that a lot? Well, that depends. It's yes and no. It's a lot for Sunday news, any Sunday at 7 p.m. on any cable station. It's not when most people are watching cable news. Interesting, it's less than Pete got on a Monday in April on CNN. It's more than Mayor Pete got on a Sunday in March on CNN. Overall, Fox Fox's town halls rate better than CNN town halls, but Fox's Pete Mayor Pete's Fox town hall rated less than any of any of the other Fox town halls. Like, um, was it Bernie Sanders was three point something? Was yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Again, Sunday night at seven o'clock is not necessarily the uh, uh, the best time, but.
still, still it's a big deal. You know what? Uh, again, why I say he was right to do so? Because that those 1.1 million views viewers that he got on Fox are 1.1 million people that he would not have reached on MSNBC or on CNN. It's a whole new audience, a whole new crowd. I think Mayor Pete was uh, smart to do it. We have a quick break here. And, you know, we tell you often that there are several sources that we have for keeping up with all the news of the day here at the Bill Press Show. One of the big ones is the 1230 report for The Hill, The Hill newspaper, thehill.com, every single day. Kate Martell is the one who puts the 1230 report together. She joins us in studio next here to kick off on this Tuesday, May 21, The Bill Press Show. Give us a quick break, and we'll be right back with Kate Martell. This is The Bill Press Show. The Bill Press Show, that's me on a Tuesday, May 21. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C. Right down the street from the United States Capitol building. And down the street from the beautiful Library of Congress, where I was last night. If you ever come to Washington, I'll tell you again, it is the most beautiful building, I think, in the country, uh, the Library of Congress. And we're brought to you today by the Laborers International Union of North America. Those good men and women of the Laborers Union under President Terry O'Sullivan. Uh, rebuilding America day by day, brick by brick. Check out their website at Liuna. Builds America, L-I-U-N-A, liunabuildsamerica.org. Uh, and join me in saying uh, hello and a big welcome to Kate Martell, the author of the, or publisher of the 1230 Report on the Hill, thehill.com. Uh, every day we um, don't miss you and pick up a lot. on the Because we get the morning newsletters, what's nice is, and that kicks us off, right? And then continuing to keep up to date on the news of the day, plus the new stuff that's happened in the morning. Absolutely. And your job. Yep, and a lot of the newsletters, I used to help with the morning newsletter too, and um, a lot of the things end up being written you know, the night before and a lot of the stories that right. are going to be big and breaking for the day, but it's interesting to see what happens when lawmakers are up in the morning, who's on the morning shows, and it actually ends up sending the tone for the day. The newsletter, the morning newsletters start it, and then we kind of pick up where they're where they're leaving off and changing and what the stories actually were. That and that and the reality is that the news cycle today is so <laughs> never nonstop, right, that you have to pick up um, at least check in at least three times a day, right? Absolutely. In the morning, in midday, and the evening and just to keep up with the flow. It's been right? like this for years, but especially with the president's oh tweet schedule yeah. that whatever he wakes up and he starts watching Fox and Friends, Anything that happens between 6.30 and 9, that can change the whole tone of the day on Capitol Hill. And, and, and the one thing you do is you uh, update us on Donald Trump's tweets, morning tweets, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Those keep Trump. me busy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, we've been busy, too, here for uh, the last 40 minutes or so as we got started and uh, always stirring up a little dust. Peter? Let's just check in on a poll that we put up yesterday. There's there's oh, not right. much time left. Yes. It's about to close, but uh, we put up a poll. Do you think that Justin Amash will influence other Republicans to take a stance on impeaching Trump, or will he stand alone? Now, yesterday when I read this poll, it was like 80% who said he's going to stand on his own. The poll has changed. Mm-hmm. 
Now 81% of the people <laughs> think that he's on his own. It's, it really hasn't changed much. Uh, 19% of you say he will inspire others. Uh, just a comment on that from our friend Audio Jode says, the question was inspire. Yes, I think he will inspire. Now taking action or publicly saying so, that is another question that I have little faith in. But as Obama says, there is always hope. <laughs> Find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Yeah. Uh, so Justin Amash, uh, Kate, came back to uh, Washington uh, yesterday. We played this clip a little earlier, but just uh, for those of you just joining us, uh, reporters, uh, he, they, they, he kept a pretty low profile most of the day. But at one point, he had to walk from the Capitol back to his <laughs> office, I guess, and reporters were waiting for him. And they tried to get him. Really, I think they were expecting him to say, well, you know, I didn't really mean it, or that's up to the leadership or something, but uh-uh, he didn't back down. Here he is. What do you have to feel about uh, Leader McCarthy saying that you vote more times with uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, than you do Republicans? Well, I think everyone knows he's lying. That's <laughs> He's lying. That's typical, Kevin. And when you say you're going to review impeachment proceedings, it's a process. What do you exactly mean by that? Well, it's a process. It's not like the uh, resolution is just drawn up. Uh, overnight, it's it's a process, and you have to uh, come to the right conclusions about how to draft something. But you would like to see them start at some point. I think it's appropriate to do so. Yep, he wants to see the process get started. Great. So, uh, do do we have any sign that anybody else may join him yet? <laughs> Uh, well, that's interesting about the poll that Peter was reading, yeah. that most people don't think that he's he's kind of a, a lone wolf, that if it were any other member, well, with the exception of a few, you might argue that, yeah, this is going to be a start of the sea change. But Justin Amash for years has always kind of been a disruptor within the Republican Party. He's always ticked off Republican Party leadership. And this he's libertarian that was uh, one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus. So his M.O. has always been not necessarily rank and file that, yes, it's a big deal that he's the first Republican um, that is breaking with the party and calling for impeachment proceedings and starting the process. But he's he's a libertarian more than he is a rank and file Republican. And he's somebody who leadership has always kind of butt heads with because he's never been um, totally in line with them. So I don't think it's necessarily a start of the sea change. But that being said, as if other stories come out further and further, I know I've been saying this for years, another mm -hmm. story comes out, we could start yeah. seeing more Republicans break. And so far, we haven't really seen that. But I do think that it kind of sets the stage where it's hardest for the first one. So, Yeah, uh, it, 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 you're, I agree. I don't think we're going to see a flood of people following him. But it's still significant because he's a, a Republican who says, first of all, I did something none of my colleagues have done. I read the report. Right. And he says, look, just on the face of it, I think the report concludes the president did commit impeachable, of, impeachable offenses. And no matter Republican or Democrat, that's our job. We've got to pursue that. You know, So uh, as I point out in my column in your newspaper, uh, our newspaper this morning in The Hill, thehill.com, we're going to send that column out to all of you following us on Twitter and on uh, uh, and sign up for our podcast, um, The Hill, or you can check, go to thehill.com. As I point out, Justin Amash is not only maybe the most courageous Republican in the House, but also the loneliest today, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He's never really had many friends, as you point out in the column this morning, um, that he has always been this lone wolf. And he's always, I mean, he butt heads with John Boehner 
And then when Speaker Ryan took over, he said that Speaker Ryan was worse than Boehner. So he's just always kind of clashed and he's never he's he's had some key votes where he's wrote vote against Republicans and voted against the budget because he didn't think it go, went far enough right. um, to cut spending. So and speaking of clashes, um, we know that many of these uh, clashes between the White House and House Democrats are going to end up in the courts. Uh, whether it's uh, do we have to turn over tax records or financial records or uh, allow witnesses to testify or whatever. Uh, and the first one uh, to make it yesterday was the subpoena that the House Oversight Committee under Chairman Elijah Cummings had issued uh, to get two, finan- two uh, accounting firms to turn over the financial records of tr- the Trump empire, Trump business for the last, I think, six or 10 years, whatever it was. One of them was Mazars USA. Uh, and a federal judge here in Washington yesterday ruled um, that, that that absolutely this accounting firm has to turn over the financial records. They have to comply with the subpoena. Uh, and that's a big deal for, I mean, a big blow at the Trump White House. It is, absolutely. Um, now, the Trump obviously came out pretty soon after and criticized it, saying it was an Obama-appointed judge, that this is just a political move. But what the judge is arguing <coughs> is that you don't need impeachment proceedings to be able to have to look into the president. Everything is fair game from before and during an administration. So um, while the president's legal team is saying that they're going to fight this in the courts. Yeah, they're going to appeal it, right. They will. And they're saying that they're arguing that House Democrats are just trying to kind of look into whatever they can and dig up dirt and without any legal basis. But the fact that a federal judge yesterday upheld the subpoena, it's it's a sign likely that it's going to move more in House Democrats' favor, at least for now. And, and the, ju- the judge, Judge, uh, um, uh, had his name here. Um, no, the judge I hadn't heard from. Amit Mehta. Amit Mehta, who's on the U.S. District Judge here in, uh, in, in um, Washington, D.C. Um, in his ruling, I mean, he said it is unfathomable that a Congress, which has the power to impeach a president would not have the power to investigate a president and that the White House is claiming, no, you cannot probe the president at all, right? Basically, he's above the law. And that's what Bill Barr seems to be saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't have to supply with these, comply with these stinking subpoenas or whatever, or even send any witnesses to testify. And the judge said, are you kidding? Basically, that's crazy. Just on the reading of the law, which is a pretty strong argument, I think. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, you can't really blame the Trump administration for trying that if there's things that they don't want to. I, I mean, whether or not, obviously, it's going to be held up in the courts and then Trump can go tell his supporters, look, this is just obstruction from Democrats that well, if there are things make, in there, he might no, as well try. They're, they're free to make that argument. But from one, you don't read too much into what the judge said, but at least so far with the first test, right, their argument didn't make it, didn't go very far in the courts. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so now it'll be appealed, and 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 we'll see. But um, and and that could be followed by um, well, uh, holding Don McGahn now the White House. That's the other thing that happened yesterday, where the White House basically telling Don McGahn, uh, don't listen. Don't don't follow this. He's been subpoenaed to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. 
And they told him yesterday, just don't show up. And McGann's attorney says, okay, we won't. So this is the next test, I guess, right? Absolutely. Imagine being put in that spot where you have Congress telling you to show up and you have the White House saying, actually, don't. That that must, is, is, from a legal perspective, that must not be a fun feeling. Um, but yes, absolutely. So Don McGahn is supposed to show up at 1030 a.m. for the House Judiciary Committee. Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the committee, um, came out last night saying, defy the White House. You still have to show up or we're going to hold you in contempt and so far, it's looking like Don McGahn is not going to show up. But, I mean, still watch for 1030 to see who knows what's changing behind the scenes. Um, but, yes, the White House is trying to block his testimony in whatever they can, whatever ways they can that are possible, because McGahn's testimony is so important because, A, it's, it kind of kicks off what could lead to impeachment proceedings. And McGahn had extensive testimony with special counsel Robert Mueller. Well, He's the big guy that kind of is the key in all of this. I went, That's what I wanted to ask you about that. If, if McGahn has already spilled the beans <laughs> to Robert Mueller, he's already testified, and that's a key part of the Mueller report uh, in terms of obstruction, that on two different occasions the president called him and said, I need you to fire Robert Mueller. And McGahn was so upset by that that he said he was going to quit rather than do that. Uh, and then the president said, well, okay, you can, I guess you're going to, if you're, you're not going to do that, well, then at least tell the New York Times when they reported that I asked you to do that, tell them that was false. And McGahn said, no, I'm not going to do that either. So kind of, you know, <laughs> what does he have to hide, right? Yeah. Why, why can't he just tell that same story under oath that he already told Robert Mueller? Uh, under oath in that private hearing. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, the chances of us hearing anything different or new are pretty slim that he's going to tell the special counsel everything he knows. Um, but I think what's would, in, the advantage is it would just be part then of the congressional record, right? It would. Under oath. Um, and I think what's also important, too, is that special counsel Robert Mueller didn't actually make uh, an assessment on obstruction. He let that go to William Barr. And obviously there's controversy back and forth that William Barr's four-page summary was politically motivated um, in deciding his obstruction. So um, I think it's important that right now that Democrats want that on record, that they're saying, hey, that we never found um, special counsel Robert Mueller obviously didn't charge um, the president with obstruction through William Barr, but that doesn't mean that obstruction didn't happen. So they're just trying to further this along. And this is why they want it on record and why McGahn is so important as a key in all of this. Right. Uh, And again, somehow, we don't know how long it's going to take, all of this will be resolved in the courts, but you've got the House Oversight Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, and Maxine Waters' um, Financial Banks and Financial Institutions, whatever the name Mm -hmm. of that committee is, all of them who have issued requests or subpoenas and all of them being basically opposed right now by by the White House. We'll see how how all of those uh, particularly play out. So um, where does this lead? Question. Congressman David Cicilline is part of the House leadership. Okay. So um, the House leadership under Speaker Pelosi uh, has been very reluctant to proceed with impeachment hearings, right? And she makes the argument uh, it, it would divide the country. It's a big distraction. And instead, we ought to focus on our legislative agenda. We ought to focus on our hearings. 
and we ought to focus on beating Donald Trump in 2020. Um, it's reported yesterday that at another meeting of the Democratic caucus, there were several members of House, several House Democrats who challenged Speaker Pelosi on that. I'm not sure that David Cicilline, part of the leadership, was one of those. We don't know. But he did speak to reporters yesterday where he seems to show um, that he's getting a little frustrated himself. Uh, here he says that, uh, first of all, uh, speaking to reporters, if the White House continues to uh, obstruct this, this is something we can't tolerate. We have a president that is actively trying to cover up and prevent the American people from getting to the truth, and that's not something I think we can tolerate. Can't tolerate it, and the, he says the McGahn thing may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I think we are getting to that point. If Mr. McGahn does not appear, it will then establish a pattern from this president to not only have obstructed or attempted to obstruct justice, as detailed in the Mueller report, but an ongoing effort to prevent the American people from knowing the full truth, engaging in a cover-up, and behaving as if he's above the law. So I think what's significant there, again, he says maybe McGahn gets us to the point where, like, we have to start impeachment here. And again, I hear he is part of the Democratic leadership. This is a little, little crack in the wall here we're seeing. Yeah, I think it is. A, it's starting to see this the leadership starting to crack a little bit. But I think that it's going to take a while for Pelosi. Yeah, I mean, to she's get on strong board. and she's clearly in charge, right? I'm <laughs> not saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> but, saw that. Anybody, whatever happened to that? Those twelve people who were trying to knock her down, right, oh. and try to prevent her being reelected speaker. Oh yeah, she's she's strong. Yeah, she's strong in the leadership in the party. Um but so I don't see her going in that direction for a long time, but we can start seeing I think I mean Jerry Nadler has started to point in that direction that saying, "Hey, if all if you guys are going to file these subpoenas, uh-huh. then you're kind of testing us to see you're getting closer and closer to impeachment proceedings." Um that yeah, seeing David Cicilline go in that direction is kind of showing that Leader, that leadership may not be there quite yet, but they're starting to crack a little bit and they're starting to kind of question the president's motives. And I think it's interesting that you're just pointing out that, yes, President Trump may have obstructed justice as outlined in the Mueller report, but the ongoing efforts to continue obstructing and to continue hurting Congress's efforts to try to get to the bottom of this, I think, do factor in that this could be part of the testimony. This could be is what's coming up in the House Democrats um, hearings is saying, hey, why? Why? What was the White House telling you to do? Were they telling you not to come here? What was their what was their legal basis for it? Right. Um, uh, absolutely. In fact, um, um, McGahn's, McGahn's testimony, testimony, I think, uh, will eventually happen. And will be hugely significant because he was there, right, in the White House. And he figures, I forget how many pages, somebody, I saw that somewhere, but pages and pages of the Mueller report are all about Don Mueller, uh, Don McGahn. You know, he's, he's sort of the central character, particularly on the obstruction side, right? Yes, absolutely. That's why the president so badly wants to try to prevent this testimony. Yeah. But I agree. I think it's going to happen at some point and from an optics point of view is that yes we may already know this but the average american is not going to read the 448 page report but right. hearing sound bites from mm-hmm. somebody who was at the white house at the time who can speak from it it's not in, it's not coming from a democrat it's coming from one of his own former legal team so um, it's important seeing those sound bites of mcgann explaining what happened when he was in the white house during that time 
Now, we know here, uh, those of us like you who cover Washington, uh, what's happening on the Hill, what's happening at the White House, know that, uh, as they say, politics often makes strange bedfellows. Uh, I'm not sure it's ever been as true as it is um, yesterday when Mitch McConnell actually joined forces with Tim Kaine of Florida in what they're calling T21, which is a bill that would um, raise the age, legal age for buying tobacco from 18 to 21. Uh, Mitch McConnell. Now, the last time I remember, yeah, Kentucky is famous for bourbon, but it's also famous for something yeah. else, right? <laughs> yeah, the key, tobacco. <laughs> like tobacco. And so is Virginia, right? Big, big crop in Virginia. Yeah. And here we've got Kane and McConnell teaming up to say, to raise the... Uh, the age for buying tobacco products to 21. And now uh, I'm blanking on which story it was, but I, that when McConnell first introduced this idea during an event was one of one of the biggest major stories of 2019. And I, I wonder, I think it was when the Mueller report came out. It was a major story that McC- McConnell tried to sneak it in there to try to get it under the radar. And now it's he's oh. trying to come to see that. Yeah. So he's been talking about this for about a month now and was trying to really sneak it in there. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating that McConnell is from a tobacco state and is trying to raise the legal age. Uh, particularly, yeah, I, I'm for both of them, uh, but even more surprising for Mitch McConnell um, than Tim Tim Kaine, a Democrat who would be more likely maybe to buck the big tobacco companies than McConnell. The question is, and I, I saw this morning in the reporting on the bill, that like the um, American Heart Association uh, and others, uh, the group about something like kids and tobacco, I forget, a great, great group trying to prevent kids from starting to smoke early, um, has been around for a long time. All of them are a little cautious, right? They like the sound of the bill, but they're afraid that McConnell's going to pull a fast one and put some am- amendments in it that's going to weaken it or something, right? Because yeah, that's a good just because of the, <laughs> It's because of his record of supporting toba- big tobacco yeah. all these years. Right. Uh, but it may be just a, si- a sign of the times where public health has just um, become such a powerful issue. Certainly, ha- Republicans got hammered on it in 2018 uh, that they feel they have to, um, that McConnell feels he's got to do this. It's, I'm sure it's all about politics and getting reelected. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of what is we've seen from this change is why that <coughs> even a McConnell could be trying to raise the age. Um, is the jewel. That's that's something that has really, I think, brought to the forefront that we're seeing really young teenage kids, um, even younger than teenage kids, that are using this jewel because there's all these flavors that mm-hmm. they associate with candy and stuff. So I think that that's kind of brought the attention of everyone in the room. It's even starting to see Republicans saying, hey, we got to crack down on this. This is it's it's starting forming bad habits really early. And it's something that really needs to be stopped. Right. Uh, and that's the fear, I think, of some of these anti-tobacco groups that McConnell may say, okay, we'll have the, 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 the raise the age to 21, but we'll allow advertising or something for these, for the, for the vaping and, uh, and those candy products or whatever, uh, that that, and that that would ruin the bill, right, if they yeah. put that in there. Uh, McConnell also did point out that Kentucky uh, not only – leads a nation in tobacco production, but also leads a nation in lung cancer. Um, yeah. Maybe not surprising, but <laughs> yeah. the, the, two of them, the two of them go together. Um, uh, and meantime, uh, on, on the Hill, 
I guess right now it's uh, it's just a matter of, of letting this this clash between the White House and the Congress go forward, but nothing else is really slated to happen, is it? I mean, do you see any, there's no major legislation pushing through? Yeah, we're already in campaign mode, so, and we're already seeing, I mean, budget talks and raising the debt ceiling is what's consuming Congress and the White House right now. That's what they're trying to work on, but there, yeah, there's no major legislation. Um, Democrats want to increase non-defense spending, and Republicans are trying to limit that. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now is there's going to be a meeting on the Hill for um, top top leaders in Congress meeting with some White House officials, Mick Mulvaney and Steve mm-hmm. Mnuchin, as mm-hmm. representing the White mm-hmm. House, to try to come up with a budget agreement. Um, but Republicans, it looks like, are going to have to give some give some concessions because they really don't want a government shutdown. So I think we could expect some non. And spending. let's not forget, tomorrow is round two. For infrastructure, uh, it's, this is infrastructure week it's yet again. Infrastructure okay. week. I know. <laughs> uh, where Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer got back to the White House to see, okay, Donald Trump. The last time you said you'd spend two trillion on infrastructure, where's the money? Right? Yeah. Where's it coming yeah. from? Should be a very interesting meeting yet again. Kate Martell, The Hill, thehill.com, and sign up for the twelve thirty report. Don't forget. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank this you, Bill. All right, we'll be Bill right back. Press show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. A federal judge yesterday saying, damn right, you got to turn over those financial records. A big blow to the Trump White House, which says they're going to appeal the decision, of course. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Great to see you today. It's a Tuesday. Tuesday, May 21 here on The Bill Press Show as we come to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., joining you all over this great land of ours, coast to coast, from our studio on Capitol Hill, uh, on the radio. We're joining you on the radio, on television, and online, of course. Uh, It's good to have you with us today. As always, lots and lots to talk about. Yes, a federal judge yesterday uh, telling the Trump administration, telling, actually, a big accounting firm, that they must comply with a subpoena issued by the House Oversight Committee to turn over the financial records for the Trump empire for the last six to ten years. Meanwhile, uh, the White House telling former White House counsel Don McGahn, uh, you can ignore whatever Congress is telling you. You don't have to testify. You can stay home because we are going to uh, pretend that executive privilege covers anything you might tell Congress, even though Don McGahn already spilled all the beans to special counsel Robert Mueller. That is just going to escalate uh, the battle or the constitutional crisis between the White House and the Congress. Uh, And for all of that and more this hour, 
Uh, we are very happy to welcome back good friend of the program. Chris Liu is a former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and now a fellow, senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Right. Uh, Chris, it's good to see you. Phil, this is bittersweet. I, I just want to, you know, I, I, I told Peter, your producer, I wanted to come back, not say goodbye, but certainly thank you and wish you well on this next phase of your career. And also just to thank you. I mean, I, I've been on the show fairly regularly for about two years, and you also gave me my first stint guest hosting. I was going to say, you're not only a guest on the show, you've, you've actually <laughs> yeah, taken right. the big, uh, the driver, the wheel here a few and times. And it yeah. was scary. And a great as, job. Thank yes. you. It was scary yes, as all get out, but it was, um, yeah. it, it meant a lot to me that you trusted me to do this, and I've had a lot of fun, and I look forward uh, to being on your podcast when that when that kicks off. Right, absolutely. We're just reinventing ourselves. Not going, <laughs> not going away. It keeps you young. And uh, no, but uh, our viewers and our love and our and our uh, listeners loved having you in in the, in the chair here. So well, yeah. I always tell we'll you, see. like my 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 so, mo of doing the show is I basically tell you how we did it in the Obama administration, and I talk about how they did it in the Trump administration. And I let everyone decide which one's the better way of doing it. That's an easy two hours, right? <laughs> and of course, you just follow Peter Ogburn's instructions. There you go. <laughs> <All right. laughs> always a bad idea. All right, Chris, you and I have a lot to talk about, but first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. You know, the hot new fashion trend, Bill, is wearing uh, Dunkin' Donuts latte-inspired fingernail polish. They are out with a new line of beverage-inspired fingernail polish colors, such as Coco Mocha, Caramel Craze, and Blueberry Crisp. These are all different kinds of flavors of coffee that they sell, but they well, also but, uh, are naming the fingernail polish. polish. Fingernail polish named after coffee flavor. Well, then do you uh, lick your fingernails? To be clear, they do not taste like the coffee flavors. They oh. are just named after the coffee flavors. Yes, oh, yes. Okay. So don't eat the nail polish, whatever you do. <laughs> uh, it's getting hot out there, Bill. I, well, yeah. No, yesterday was really... Really warm. Here on the East Coast it is, but here's the thing. In the Midwest, they got snow. They've gotten snow this week. Before like the, the weekend or the week before Memorial Day, they experienced some snowfall. Uh which is not good news, as you no, can imagine. I, I talked to a woman from Vermont um last night. They just had snowfall up in Vermont like last week. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I was in Maine a couple of weeks ago, and they said this is way colder than it normally is this time of year. Hmm. So, like, it stay warm, I guess, this Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> right. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? Here we are, the Bill Press Show on a Tuesday, Tuesday, May 21. Hello, folks. Great to see you today. It is the uh, Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C. And our studio on Capitol Hill. Uh, look forward to uh, sharing the news of the day with you today. Uh, and uh, news on many fronts here in Washington, D.C. What's happening at the White House, what's happening in the Congress around the country and the rest of the globe. All of it is our territory, uh, and particularly here in Washington, D.C., with a federal judge yesterday saying it is unfathomable to think 
that Congress, which has the authority to remove a president from office under impeachment, does not have the authority to investigate him. So therefore, said the judge, <clears throat> of course, the banks and the financial institutions have to uh, comply with the subpoena they receive from Congress to turn over the president's financial records. That's just one of the big issues we want to uh, discuss today and happy to have joining us to uh, go through the news of the day, Chris Liu, who's former uh, defense secretary. Uh, whoa. Wow, that was a nice promotion, Bill. Deputy <laughs> Labor Secretary uh, in the, under the Obama administration and now with the great Miller Center at the University of Virginia. Hey, Chris, it's good to see you. Thank you for having me, and thank you again for uh, being such a great supporter of mine. Uh, yes, absolutely, and for you for being such a big part of the program. Now, we've got lots to talk about, but I, I want to just take a little time out here to salute a man that I really never heard from yeah. until about, rather, until yesterday, and that is a man by the name of Robert Smith. It's incredible. Billionaire. Yeah. Uh, head of his own. He's got a... a a venture capital yeah. fund, very successful, obviously. Billionaire. Um, very generous. He actually, uh, I read a, a story where the African-American Museum down on the mall, uh, they were looking for donors, and somebody said, uh, well, there's a guy named Robert Smith you ought to check in with. And, and, and um, I guess his name now, the, the head of the museum there, Lonnie, whatever, uh, said, who the hell's Robert Smith? <laughs> Well, they got in touch with him. He gave them $20 million, yeah. Yeah. second only to Oprah Winfrey, who yeah. gave him $21 million. So there's a guy out of nowhere. And so he's giving the commencement address at Morehouse University. Uh, and at the very end of the address, he sort of just, oh, and by the way, all you people out there, I'm going to come up with a little foundation. We're going to make a grant. And we're going to wipe out yeah. all your student debt. Yeah. This is one of those remarkable moments that, you know, again, for those of us that spend our lives on Twitter, you know, there's a lot of very negative um, things that just make you upset about where the world is right now. Look, read this story and then watch the moment when he actually makes that announcement. It's it, it, it will bring tears to your eyes. And you, you see this moment of initially among the, the, the students uh, disbelief. And then they start clapping. And then what he says is he then he says, you know, 2019, you're my class, but I make this as a challenge to all of the other alums of Morehouse to do this as well. And then he says to the students, I want you to pay this forward. And when you read the backstory on this, it's fascinating because this is something that he had sort of thought up on his own, hadn't told anybody. No. Uh, and in fact, had not even told the, the university. So they're now scrambling to figure out exactly what this means, how much debt we're really going to cover, what the total cost. He doesn't even have a good sense of what the cost of this thing is, and he made this pledge. And I think from a, it would be fascinating, I think, from a sociological perspective to take this this cohort of students now and now follow them through their careers. What does what 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 yeah. happens to their lives when they can start fresh and they can make decisions that are not uh, encumbered by debt? That's a very good point. Yeah, that'd be a fascinating study. And, and, by, and by the way, that should be something that every college student gets to experience. Uh, you should yes. be able to go to college and not have to worry about starting your life in the hole for tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, you're right. The, so he gets this honorary degree. Yeah. It was not like ahead of time. Um, 
we're going to give you this honorary degree, and we would like you to help us out. Right. Or something. No, there was no deal ahead of time or something. The college officials were as stunned by this as the students were. No. And it, as you say, if you watch the video, it takes a minute or so, or a few seconds, for that to sink in, right? Yeah. No, and the other, and again, I I tweeted about this, and it was, um, it's sort of a a, a stark contrast. You have a very generous benefactor, and in contrast, you have the actions that this administration is taking through the Department of Education. So, two two important policy points. Uh, There is a program that provides loan forgiveness to people that seek public service work. Uh, As of a couple months ago, under Betsy DeVos's leadership, 99% 99% of the applications for loan forgiveness had been denied by the Department of Education. Oh, She's actually been sued on that. Uh, and in th- this president's budgets, he's tried to cut the uh, funding for um, subsidies for low-income students for, for, for colleges. So you have, yeah, the, yeah. The, you, you have the federal government, which should be taking a leadership role on this, not. And then you have a private benefactor stepping in to fill the gap. Right. So uh, the New York Times this morning takes a look at the student debt. Who owes? Who owes and how much? making a a few important points, I think, here. Just to put this in perspective, almost two-thirds of seniors at four-year colleges hold student loan debt, two-thirds of them. An average, 28650 per person uh, in uh, 2017, so last year. Now, that comes up from back in 1996. It was an average $12,750. So, you know, more more than doubled. Uh, in in the last 10 years or so. No, and, and what's incredible about it is that not just what it does to uh, people starting out in their work careers in terms of the, the decisions that they can make, uh, but I think more broadly, it's sort of, it, it you know, a lot of people obviously rightfully are talking about how the economy is doing so well. There's, you know, an un, a strong undercurrent of financial <laughs> insecurity. And one of the big issues is really this kind of growing student debt issue uh, there are a lot of causes for this. We can actually have a longer conversation about w- what causes this and what can be done. But when you see people like Elizabeth Warren out on the campaign trail talking about how we need to address that, that will resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, there's another aspect of this which um, we don't maybe usually consider. But again, remember, this is Morehouse University. Right. Um, that it says, uh, the question the New York Times expo- uh, it explores here whether there's any racial disparity in student debt loans. Yeah. And, of course, there is. Black Recent black graduates of four-year colleges owe, on average, $7,400 more than their white, peel, white peers. And they're also, African-American students, more likely to have to take out yeah. loans yeah. than other students. No, I mean, this shouldn't surprise so you. It particularly mean, hits people of color. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, obviously, I mean, it largely reflects the socioeconomic status of African Americans. You know, we saw this play out earlier this year during the government shutdown. African American federal employees are more disproportionately hurt because they ha- they tend to have lower incomes, they have lower savings, and when you're attending a school like Morehouse, which is a great school, but may not be as well-funded and may not have the resources to provide the level of financial aid as other schools. Um, It's sort of debt piled on top of the debt. Right. Um, Chris Liu with us again from the University of Virginia Miller Center today, um, former Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, So, Chris, yesterday um, the White House got a little surprise in the form of a rebuke by a federal district judge here, District Judge Amit Mehta, uh, the university, I mean, here in the District of Columbia, who ruled, his initial ruling at any rate, 
uh, where the White House was saying, we don't, well, that the financial institutions, yeah. which have the financial records for the Trump businesses, don't have to comply yeah. with the subpoena from the House of Representatives because basically the president, uh, uh, you, the, the Congress has no right to investigate the right. president. And this judge said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, are you kidding me? He said, of course. He said, if Congress can impeach the president, then Congress can investigate Absolutely. the president. So That's a pretty pretty important ruling. It's a, it's a really important ruling, and I do suggest people read it. So I have a little perspective. I mean, I obviously, before I was the Deputy Secretary of Labor, I spent four years in the Obama White House. I also spent eight years on the House Oversight Committee. Oh, so I've, I've you both, know this committee. I've both issued subpoenas, and I've been the recipient of subpoenas, not actually <laughs> my own personal yeah, context. Right. But I do recommend to your listeners, go read the opinion. It's about 40 pages long. Uh, it is one of the easiest to read opinions, but it's also one of the most well-reasoned opinions I've read. There are a couple of amusing aspects of it. Uh, first of all, it starts with a quote from James Buchanan, President Buchanan, who is considered widely considered the worst president of the United States. It just right. and, and, it, and it has well, this, until <laughs> right exactly until, until this one is over. And it, <laughs> and it has a sense a little bit of a, a a bit of a kind of a dig that even James Buchanan made these arguments against congressional oversight, and he was slapped down. But there are a couple interesting aspects that I found in the opinion. One is um, Judge Mehta says that Congress has the the power to investigate conduct not only when someone is in office, but before they were in office. Uh, and, and he says that um, not only because there's a legislative purpose, but he calls it the informing function, the informing power of Congress to do hearings. And he points to things like, you know, Whitewater, uh, Watergate and things like that. Uh, the other interesting thing I noticed in there was that he said um, the president's um, uh, lies about or failure to uh, list his payments to his mistresses was a predicate for getting these records because it suggests if he commits one financial irregularity, there may be other financial irregularities in these records. And so, uh, again, it sort of highlights the fact that uh, a lot of this is sort of self-inflicted on the part of this White House. Right. Uh, now, the White House says, of course, it's going to appeal, right? Um, but what we what could we learn from these financial disclosures? Now, again, these are the banks or, or the uh, accounting firms, right, that I guess did their yeah. taxes and um, n- know how much money they borrowed, yeah. how much money they owe, yeah. how much money they've made, right? Right. Or and lost. So, right. And so I, I, I look at sort of two things, two recent New York Times stories. There was the one where they got a cop- New York Times about two weeks ago, got copies of Trump's financial, had seen his tax returns. From about a ten-year right. period, from the mid '80s to the mid '90s, where he lost billions a billion of dollars. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, the question has always remained: after losing over a billion dollars, how did you get yourself back on a financial glide path? Who funded that over the last twenty years? That's an unknown question that these records would show. And then the article from two days ago, where uh, employees at Deutsche Bank had wanted to report both Trump and Kushner for potential. Uh, money laundering, uh, and then were stopped by uh, their supervisors. Yeah, Again, that so, story got no, no attention whatsoever. It did not actually. So it's both how did Trump rebuild his fortune after the late '80s, early '90s, uh, and then how was he moving money around uh, over the last couple of years? That's one of the things. Those two things that these records would show. And wasn't it yesterday? I didn't pay a lot of attention to this. I was very busy on another project yesterday, but 
Uh, didn't uh, the president say yesterday that basically who needs banks? I never needed banks. I never need. I never needed any money. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And and and, and, I mean, and right. And from and, everything we know, that's total BS. That's that's absolutely total BS. Um, I mean, he has run a highly leveraged um, uh, set of companies. Um, this is this whole thing is kind of like a Ponzi scheme. It's kind of a house of cards that is only possible because he's had banks that have continued to loan him money despite his otherwise poor business record. Right. Uh, now, in the meantime, the other little uh, crisis of the day is today is the day at 1030, about two hours from now, where uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn <laughs> <laughs> is supposed to show up at the meeting of the House Judiciary Committee uh, to testify under oath about some of the things that are reported yeah. in the Mueller report. Uh, it looks like there's going to be an empty chair there, maybe, and a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, yeah now, that, well, let's uh, hopefully Democrats will learn not to do the Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> thing again. I'm not sure that worked out so well. No, you're right. I mean, he, Don McGahn has said he will not testify. Uh, the president, while not uh, asserting executive privilege, uh, has basically told him not to show up uh, McGahn doing sort of a dutiful soldier is not showing up, notwithstanding the fact that executive privilege would not cover this, nor uh, would attorney-client privilege cover this because it's yeah. probably been waived already. Yeah, uh, yeah. McGahn did 30 hours of testimony before the special counsel. And he's no longer a federal employee. No longer correct? a federal employee. So he can do whatever the hell he wants. Although there was this interesting thing that got tweeted out last night that I retweeted about. Uh, when you look at the, um, the, the most recent RNC disclosure— RNC has paid Don McGahn's firm, Jones Day, $2 million for uh, legal fees. And so uh, it's certainly not in his law firm's financial interest for Don McGahn to get on the wrong side of this president. Whoa. So, so wait a minute. RNC is a client? No, Jones Day is the uh, – Jones Day does the quote-unquote yeah. compliance work for the RNC. Okay. That's what I mean. So and, RNC is a client. Yeah. And the $2 million worth? Mm -hmm. So, I think that was in this last quarterly um, FEC report. Uh, by the way, you mentioned you retweeted this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just have to say as a little sideline here, uh, after Donald Trump, um, according to my iPhone, yeah, the one who tweets more than anybody else is Chris Lou. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have a lot to say. It's very cathartic. Although no, I don't know, I, I I love it. Well, I mean, thank you, Bill. Yeah. It's it's Chris Lou forty four. I'll shambles your show. But I, you know what, I um, <laughs> I sort of I had said this to people before the twenty eighteen <laughs> midterms that if the Democrats took back the House, I would like take a couple days off. Uh, I just wasn't able to do that. But I will say, look, if we get this guy out of office in November 2020. I'm, I'm like, done with Twitter after that. Yeah, wait a minute. We have to wait 18 months? Well, I know. <laughs> no, but I hear from you often, and you retweet good stuff, and it's it's nice to have a uh, a sane a sane voice uh, uh, out there. So where could this um, – if he's, again, he's not going to testify today. This could be just the first round. Um, do you think there's any way that – I mean, what can the House Democrats do? Jerry Nadler said last night – that they're willing to hold him in yeah. contempt, maybe, if we have... Is, is your IFB working? I'm yeah, I can't sure. hear a thing. You can't hear a thing. Okay. <laughs> so, right. it, so if Peter's talking, well, I can't hear Peter at all, but I can hear you fine. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we'll, 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 we won't play the clip, but, but Jerry yeah. Nadler told Chris Cuomo last night, we'll fix that at the break, uh, that um, that you know, they basically have no choice, right? Yeah. They've got to move forward. They, they can hold him in contempt. Yeah. If they do... 
Does that mean he has to testify? No. I mean, look, there's a reason why Pelosi is basically pushing off all of these contempt votes until I think June is her last thing that she said, because I think it's going to be a pretty long queue of people. I think Mnuchin's probably next when he doesn't turn over his the tax returns either. I mean, look, I, you know, Democrats right now are building a case. Um, a lot of this will get litigated through the courts. It'll be interesting to see what the White House does with his ruling from the district court that came out yesterday. Trump has already said, tried to dismiss this as saying this is a ruling by an Obama judge. Um, you know, I, look, I think we are in constitutional crisis territory at this point. I think it gets markedly worse if the White House starts disregarding judicial orders. Uh, but I think this will get pl- the, 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 the McGahn testimony will play out like the other ones. It'll get litigated in the courts. Mm-hmm. We have seen in the last um, 48 hours um, the battle for Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, first, Joe Biden, um, on his second trip to Pennsylvania, he had a big rally there at, right after his video came out. I think the first rally of his yeah. uh, was a, a union at a union hall yeah. in Philadelphia. He has set up his national headquarters in Philadelphia. Right. And he was in Philadelphia Saturday uh, for the big first big rally uh, of the, his uh, of his uh, presidential campaign, uh, and then Donald Trump responded by going to Pennsylvania last night up right. to Montoursville, Pennsylvania, which is really Trump territory that he won by some forty points, yeah. I think, the last time around, um, accusing Joe Biden of deserting Pennsylvania and turning his back on Pennsylvania and moving to another state, you know. Uh, which is funny because Joe Biden was 10 years old when his family moved exactly. from from Pennsylvania to Delaware. Uh, but the point is, um, Pennsylvania with 20 electoral votes, right? Yeah, could be key because as Pennsylvania goes, then it could be right. Yeah, Ohio, yeah. Michigan, whatever. So I guess the first question about all of that, putting that in context, now is what? What? How do you read the fact that? Um, where everybody expected him to fall in the polls once he got in, Joe Biden's done just the opposite. Yeah, look. What I, does it say about this primary? Uh, is it over? I don't think it is over, but it's not inconceivable to see, to think about Biden running the table on the first four early states. I mean, I think in many ways, Iowa's the weakest of his four states, but you could conceivably make yeah, a case. Yeah, he hasn't done well in Iowa. He has not before. done well in Iowa, but you could sort of see with New Hampshire, it's an open primary. Uh, you could see crossover there. He's obviously very strong with African-American voters, which will help him in South Carolina. Union vote is huge in Nevada, so you could see him doing well there. Uh, I don't think it's over, and I think obviously the debates will will be an important part of that. Um, fundraising is a big as well. Um, it's always easy out of the gate to do well in that first quarter of fundraising. But can you go back to those donors enough? And Biden, his initial round of fundraising has largely been done on big donors who are writing bigger checks. Who cannot write enough Exactly, check. who may have maxed out. Can he build that small dollar donor base that Sanders and others have done to keep this engine going? Campaigns get very expensive when you start having a couple hundred people on the ground. You need to raise millions of dollars uh, every month just to keep this thing going. Right. Um, how long before you think people will start dropping out? There, you know, I, I got the list here. Um, you and I could go yeah. over it, but my list is 24. Yeah. But de Blasio is yeah. 24. Because I count Mike Gravel uh, and Marianne Williamson and some <laughs> of the other uh, um, people. Don't forget our heard. guy Andrew Yang, too. He's there. He's I know. there. Yeah. Um, he's been in the studio with us. So Stacey Abrams would make 25. 
But we, for the time being, 24, yeah. how long do you think before some of these, as you mentioned, you know, it's one thing to declare. Yeah. It's another thing to get the resources just to continue at a minimum level. Yeah. And putting people on the ground in each one of these primary states. So they're going to start dropping off. How soon? Do you uh, I will say right after Labor Day, and, and here's why. Um, huh. the, f- the first two rounds of uh, DNC debates, Tom uh, Perez is kind of set. <laughs> Tom is obviously a friend. I work for Tom, and I've joked with Tom. I could probably run for president and get 65,000 people to give me money. I, I suggest that's probably a little too low, but he's decided that these first two debates, June and July, he's going to let anyone who meets this threshold uh, stay in. Uh, but he will have to tighten this by the September debates. Right. Um, yeah. So I think by September. E- even even on the um, the 65,000, uh, and Tom and I have had this conversation too <laughs> because he's been in studio with us many times, is, is I ask him, so what is the minimum, con- is it going to be a minimum yeah. contribution? And he said, no. And I said, Tom, that means people, somebody could give a dollar yeah. and that would qualify. And in fact, that's what a lot of people have done. They've they've run they've rigged the system yeah. so that I know. And by the way, totally above board. Right. Like G, Jay Inslee put out a thing said, "You want me on stage? Yeah. Send a dollar." No, and and let's not forget all merchandising counts as well. So if you if, if I want to yes. go buy yeah. a if I want to go buy a hoodie that would normally cost twenty five dollars and the web, campaign website sells it for five bucks, I get a five dollar hoodie and I made a contribution and that's one more person towards sixty five thousand. So yeah, I, I again the initial idea was to 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 encourage people to have a large base of small dollars, uh, but as with anything else, you can always game it. Right, um, and I I read this morning, but so I'm going to come back to to Biden for a second. Um, forget. Uh, Whose column it was this morning was talking about um, Biden. Uh, this is Michelle Goldberg. Oh, I saw Michelle. I love that. Uh, yeah. Was it? I, okay, I don't want to impugn the restaurant she's mentioned. Is the, the one where she. No, no, okay. this wasn't about a, re- a okay. restaurant. I didn't get that far. Oh, no, maybe no, there, in the there, was, there was one column. I, it might have been Michelle's where she said, it's like you go to, and I don't want to name a chain restaurant, where everyone can find something they want to eat, but nobody oh. leaves feeling like that was a really great meal. And then any voter can go in and say, hey, this is why oh. I like Joe Biden, but no one says I'm wildly excited about it. Well, that sounds like the Democratic <laughs> the Democratic primary, right? Right. I compared it last night to shopping at Costco. I mean, there is in this in this field, there's right. something for everybody. Absolutely. Right? So she went. Uh, she said she talked to a Joe. She was at Joe Biden's kickoff. Yeah. Rally in 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 in, uh, in in Philadelphia, and she talked to as many people as she could, and this is uh, th- this is this one guy reflects what she heard from everybody. This guy named Chevette Brown, 63 years old. He said, on my list of 10 things that he wants in 2020, on my list of, of um, that he wants from the Democratic primary, okay, on my list of 10 things, one to 10 is beat Trump. <laughs> Healthcare is number 11, and everything else comes after that. <laughs> well, look, uh, now I hear that from yeah, a lot of people, yeah. and I... To me, that explains why Biden is doing so yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, so the, here's the analogy I've always used talking about this race. Um, this is a little bit like March Madness. Um, and so here's who the final four will be. In a lot of ways, it's like exactly. March Madness. Right? Uh, we know that Sanders has the support and the small donors that he—Bernie's not leaving. He's, he's staying until the end. So Bernie has one slot totally. in the final four. Biden has slot number two in the final four just because of who he is. Uh, I would suggest that a woman has the third slot, and at this point I'll say it's probably Harris. 
And then there's a fourth slot that we don't know. That's the surprise one. So, um, and, and, and at the end, whoever is in the final will have to beat Sanders because Sanders is going to be there till the very, very end. So the final four, that's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not that. bad. That's not, not the bad. final four. Uh, it's certainly Joe and Joe and Bernie are two. Yeah. Um, it could be Kamala Harris, yeah. not Elizabeth Warren. I could argue it could be Warren. Warren has done quite well lately. See, I, but I, she has. Yeah. Warren, I can see Warren really coming on strong once the debates I, get underway. Absolutely. I really do believe that. Yeah. So it could be Warren and Harris, and then two men, two women. Yeah. Or it could be Pete yeah. Buttigieg. Buttigieg, you know. Right now. Yeah, I mean, look, we're so early. I mean, all these, I, I still maintain, uh, I, I think you had tweeted about Steve Bullock, maybe wrong year, right candidate. I, yeah. You know, I still think he has a chance to come back. He's very attractive candidate. I mean, to put him down, I just, I'd rather, I wish you were running for the Senate. <laughs> no, and I, you know, again, but, I, I, I think about somebody like Jay Inslee. I mean, there, there's an Jay upside Inslee. about being a, a blue state governor where you can just put the, totally. uh, the, the public option, the first public option on a state health care exchange. He just passed long-term care insurance in the state. I mean, he's got a very attractive record if he can get some traction, too. No. Inslee's a real sleeper, I mean, and on climate change, which is yeah. a huge issue for a lot of people, and That's, a health-related absolutely. issue. Uh, there's nobody stronger, nobody better, so, right? Um, it's going to be a wild 18 months. And it's going to be a lot of fun for those of us that love politics. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to have Chris Liu here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Uh, give us a quick break, and we're going to jo- uh, invite you to the table to join us. David Daly, our good friend who is uh, author, um, our expert on reapportionment, redistricting, campaign, I mean, uh, voter suppression and all of that, and author of the book, Rat Eft, the <laughs> true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. A quick break, and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? Here we are, the Bill Press Show on this Tuesday, May 21. Coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., just down the street from the United States Capitol building, about five metro stops away from the White House. We got it covered. With the help, uh, here's a friend of Bill for the entire hour of uh, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, former uh, member of the Obama White House, too, and then now with the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. Chris, always good to have you on board. It's always fun. Thank you. Uh, And joining us now, David Daly, our good friend, our guru, our go-to guy for questions of reapportionment, voter suppression, voter fraud, fraud, if there is any, and all that kind of stuff and author of a book a couple of years ago, Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy. When I get to the podcast, I'll be able to say the full <laughs> title of the book without having to uh, to hide it. I think so. your listeners are smart enough to figure out exactly what it is. <laughs> I do, too. I'd like to think so. Uh, I think so, too. David, it's good to see you, too. Thank Pleasure you. Pleasure to be back. Thanks, Bill. Right. Uh, we were talking a little before. I'm going to get to some of those issues, but before you get in, we were talking a little bit with Chris about um, Joe Biden being, or Donald Trump being up in Pennsylvania last night. Uh, you know, Chris, first of all, the fact that he went there looks to me, he's a little worried about Pennsylvania, right? Uh, and he should be worried about it. Although, you know, let's say Democrats traditionally finish their campaign rallies in Pennsylvania as well. It's it's always one of those states that's very close until the very end and then breaks, which is what we thought would happen in 16. I mean, Hillary did her last rally in Pennsylvania too. So uh, really as Pennsylvania goes is really the rest of the Midwest goes. Uh, but now that we have your IFB fixed, I want to play. So this is Donald Trump last night who was telling Pennsylvanians, don't trust this guy, Joe Biden, when he says he's on your side. Biden deserted you. He's not from Pennsylvania. I guess he was born here, but he left you, folks. 
He left you for another state. All right, now, <laughs> I happen to have been born in Delaware, right? Now, I know Joe Biden left Pennsylvania. He did come to Delaware. He served us 36 years in the United States Senate, not to mention eight years as <clears throat> vice president. But he was 10 years old when his father and mother moved from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Clayton, Claymont, Delaware, right? So because you really blame for that? I mean, if that's the if that's the, the extent of your attack against <laughs> Joe Biden, that his family moved when he was 10, I mean, you may want to try a little harder. <laughs> it, 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 it's just kind of insane. Yeah. But but again, 20 electoral votes, Pennsylvania yeah. could be. Could really be key. Absolutely, and it's and it's as much of it. I mean, Pennsylvania is an interesting microcosm. Obviously, you've got the the two big cities of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but you got that whole middle part, which is Trump country, which is why he went to where he was yesterday. That was an area that Democrats really need to uh, uh, keep close on, which is what Hillary didn't do in 2016. Right, uh, and uh, there's a special election up there today, yeah. which is pretty clearly going to be. Go Republican as it always has as it has been for a long time. Uh, so Donald Trump didn't go up there to help this Republican candidate so much. No, although he will there. take credit when that candidate. Oh, wins. of course, absolutely. Yeah. So David, what's the latest? We talked before about some of these battles over reapportionment. There's several still pending, right? Wisconsin, Maryland. Where are they now? Or bring us up to date. This has been a fascinating a couple of months in the battle for fair maps nationwide. What we have seen in Michigan and Ohio. First of all, are two more a federal a courts made up of bipartisan judges throwing out maps uh, drawn by Republicans in 2011. Finally, it's unconstitutional. These are maps that have hmm. produced huge Republican majorities all decade long, enduring majorities, even oh, in years when Ohio Democrats win more votes. Ohio and Michigan. Whoa. Yeah. Um, which is a really big deal. Now, those two cases will head straight to the U.S., a Supreme Court, where you already have the cases from North Carolina and Maryland stacked up, and they are waiting for a ruling that we will probably get in June. Have they uh, oral arguments already been heard? In we had oral arguments in both of those cases back in March, and it was really interesting because I think a lot of people, including me, uh, thought that after Anthony Kennedy stepped down from the court, mm -hmm. that it was really, really unlikely that a court that was more conservative than that one, um, uh, Kennedy over the years had expressed a lot of interest in trying to find a problem to uh, solving partisan gerrymandering and uh, uh, figuring out a manageable constitutional standard that would uh, draw in the worst excesses. And as soon as Kennedy left and was replaced by Kavanaugh, a lot of us kind of groaned and said, this is not going to be good. But, I mean, Kavanaugh's questions in the Maryland and the North Carolina cases back in March were right on point. And a lot of people looked at him in oral arguments and said, well, maybe we judged him too quickly. And perhaps there's a possibility here that this justice understands the problem and is interested in working toward a solution. Um, one of the districts that was up in Maryland um, is, the, is Maryland's sixth which is probably the best example in the nation of a congressional district that was, was gerrymandered by Democrats in this last round. Hmm. And this is where Roberts lives. So Roberts understands deeply and personally what it is to live in a gerrymandered congressional district. So and perhaps is, that will help him. This, this is Montgomery County? This yes. is Delaney's old district, right? Right. Yeah. 
Oh. It's the one that kind of stretches like from Potomac oh. and it will all winds all the right way around. It picks up Western Maryland. They call it the I-270 district. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> essentially what they did to make that district is the uh, Democrats um, under Martin O'Malley, they they um, uh, turned that district completely inside out. It used to be represented by a Republican and they they shifted more voters in and out of Maryland 6th than any district in the country in 2011 and created a safe Democratic seat and shifted Maryland's congressional delegation from a safe 6-2 Democrat to a safe 7-1. Um, and that's one of the cases that's before the court. It would sure be ironic if the one example of a Democratic gerrymander in the yeah. 2011 cycle is what got us a part a constitutional standard finally. Right. Uh, first of all, I know I know I don't have to caution you to not to read too much into oral arguments. Oh, indeed. Because we've, been, we've gone down that trap again. We have but so little to... Uh... I, to hang on to, <laughs> I know. But Chris, this does underscore, though, in terms of overall um, election strategies, the importance of these, of basically who draws these districts and how they're drawn. No, and it's, look, I mean, I, you know, as somebody who served in the Obama administration, I mean, we take a lot of blame on this. I mean, we lost something like a thousand state legislative seats during those eight years. And unfortunately, we lost them during, you know, it, it, it's it's always this questionable thing about when you lose these seats. And when you lose them in 09 and 10, right before another round of redistricting, that's like the worst time to lose seats. And, you know, um, it, it is. Uh, and, and so you you then have to live the consequences of that for the next decade. Um, David, can I ask you, I'm just curious, though. I mean, you, you've got a Supreme Court where you, you have a chief justice who seems very politically aware, does not want to insert himself into the battles. And with um, redistricting now being so sophisticated with computers, how does a Supreme Court, which you know normally thinks about big lofty doctrine, come up with a prescription for this? It's really complicated, and that has been Roberts's. M.O. over all of these cases. Roberts has said, this is really political, and I don't want to throw the court in the middle of this. Um, I don't want to have the court picking winners and losers in what is essentially a political process. The trouble is, if the courts do not stand up here, this process has become so technical and so surgical that it is is going to essentially eat democracy alive because all of these state houses and all of these congressional seats, you will essentially nullify competitive elections in them for a decade. I think the answer comes perhaps from the the technology. Um, hmm. The technology now is so good that it can also see through what Republicans and partisans of all stripes have done in drawing these lines. And if you go back and if you look at these decisions out of Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and North Carolina especially, the courts are saying that um, when you can use computers to draw tens of thousands of neutral maps, and then you can compare all of these neutral maps to the ones that the partisans drew, and time and again, you're looking at 25,000 maps uh, that produce a partisan breakdown that, that makes sense when you think about a state, and then you have the one that the partisans drew, and it's this way 99.97 outlier over here producing a map that never exists in the real world. And when that happens, then go back and start taking a look through the rest of the process. Take a look at the emails. Take a look at the draft maps. Uh, take a look at the public process um, and, and see what happened. Um, 
and the, the the federal judges are saying pretty clearly in all of these cases that we think that there's a way to do this. Um, and the message that they're trying to send the courts is that this is really, really important, and we also think it's manageable. So uh, please let us do it. But is the answer to do what several states like California have done already, which is to take it out of the hands of the legislature and put it in the hands of some group of experts? That's a big help. I mean, every time you can take this process away from partisans, every time you ensure that everybody's got a seat at the table when these maps are being drawn, you end up with more competitive districts. And that's what Michigan and a lot of other states um, essentially ordered at initiative and constitutional amendment last fall. But Chris, the rub is the first time that I had any experience with uh, reapportionment in a state legislature, it was the Democrats who were drawing the maps, and I, mm -hmm. I could not argue that the Democrats drew maps that were any more fair, if you will, from a nonpartisan point of view than Republicans did. No, I mean, Maryland's a perfect example. Massachusetts has been an issue in the past. I mean, de the, the problem is Democrats have control in the state houses where we can really do this. <laughs> right. And yeah. then in, this, in the places where we could do this in California, uh, we've eventually, uh, we've moved to more nonpartisan methods. Although it's not to yeah. say that there aren't districts in California that are drawn in kind of a funky way as well right now. Uh, but yeah, no, obviously, you know, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, I mean, you, you, Dave, you know, there's some crazy looking uh, maps there. Yeah. It, and equally important to me are, are the efforts of voter suppression that we've seen in, I don't know, how many states? It was like 20, yeah. over 20 yeah. states last year. Uh, most notably, perhaps, in Georgia. Absolutely. Right. Did, 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 did that decide the Senate race in Georgia? The, 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 the Stacey Abrams the race. Of, yeah. Yes, I think it well could have. Um, I mean... Uh, Stacey, excuse me, Stacey Abrams lost that race by 55,000 votes. Um, and what we saw over the course of that campaign is um, that uh, uh, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state there, was administering his own election. He was working on essentially ordering precinct uh, closures around the state that uh, focused on black uh, mm -hmm. towns and communities. He was purging voter rolls in ways that were overwhelmingly um, – affecting people of color. Um, there was an awful lot happening there that could easily have shifted at the election. You also have a state legislature there that is wildly gerrymandered and that Republicans went back and re-gerrymandered again in 2015 after a couple of the seats that they drew in 2011 started shifting. It has produced a situation in Georgia in which in 2016, more than 80% of all state legislative seats had no major party competition. In 2018, it was still up around 70%. And when they pass a fetal heartbeat abortion mm. bill uh, uh, like they did, I think it really brings home that what gerrymandering uh, does, it's about more than crazy looking maps, right? It's not just a wonky a civics class lesson. This is about enabling politicians in all of these states to enact extreme legislation that a majority of the people of a state do not want, we, and yet they, the voters of that state can't do anything because the lines are drawn in a way to insulate these politicians from the ballot box. And we probably saw that same thing play out in Alabama this week with mm -hmm. 25 white men coming up with this drastic... Uh, 
total ban on abortion. Yeah, and let's not forget, when the voters try to take um, matters into their own hands through initiatives, then you have these gerrymandered legislatures that are trying to undo them. And Florida's the perfect example. Florida voters voted to restore the voting rights of, of, of ex-offenders, and now you have the legislature coming back and trying to cut back on that or saying, hey, you need to pay back all your, your old debts in order to get your voting rights, which basically becomes a modern poll tax at this point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, let me give you the – so I spent part of my life in Seattle. Let me Washington State is the most amazing thing. You get a ballot in the mail. You get a prepaid postage envelope to send it back, or there are, like, boxes all around town, all, all around the state where you just drop off your, your ballot. It's such a civilized way to vote, and it's one of the reasons why they have high voter participation rates. And, by the way, the same true of Oregon. I'm yeah. not sure you get the – Self-stamped envelope in Oregon, but at any rate, you do. It's all done by yeah. mail. Zero evidence of voter fraud, no. right? Uh, and there are all those ways that that I mean, to me, it's so basic that we could make it easier and encourage more people to vote. Um, and if it's not done by mail, early voting, right? right? Not having to vote on a on a on a Tuesday. Uh, you can just go, the voting the hours that the polls are yeah. open or whatever. Getting rid of caucuses, as far as I'm concerned, right? I agree. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, but this whole, the whole, comp, the whole com- combination of measures that that should be the goal, rather than what we see on the part of these red states, which is everything they could to suppress vote, particularly um, among college students or people of color that they think are going to vote Democratic. No, that's exactly right, I, David. I'm curious, though. I mean, again, whatever the Supreme Court decides. Doesn't this essentially ensure several more years of litigation? Because essentially, as you, we've discussed, these become fact-based determinations. I think that's right. Um, the problem here in many ways is we have lost this entire decade of our politics yeah. to uh, these extreme maps. Um, Barack Obama essentially lost the second term of his yeah. presidency uh, to these extreme maps because in 2012, Democrats get 1.4 million more votes for, for the U.S. House. Voters, Americans wanted a Democratic House to go along with the Senate and the White House. Um, you got a Republican House in 2012, and we saw what that House did to stand in the way and obstruct and cause government shutdowns and 50-something attempts to appeal Obamacare. Um, what the, you know, when there's legislation like this, it can drag on for an entire decade. Here we are in 2018, 2019, and essentially what these court decisions are saying is that We've been running elections on unconstitutional maps all decade long in Ohio, in Michigan, in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, both for state legislature and for Congress. I mean, you know, it reminds me of the old um, line by Raymond Donovan after he um, was acquitted and, you know, wanted to know, where do I go to get my reputation Reputation back? back, Where do we go to get our politics back Mm -hmm. from... What has happened to us in the last decade? It's going to take a generation to unwind the impact of the well, Republican. Well, how do you explain this? That despite those districts, despite that those red maps, in 2018, Democrats won 40 seats in the House. Well, Pennsylvania gave you a pretty good head start on that when uh, they. Oh, they they were new districts in Pennsylvania, yeah. right? New yeah. districts in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida get you about mm-hmm. halfway there, um, but. Uh, um, and then Democrats managed to take a whole bunch of uh, uh, swing seats um, around the country. They essentially ran the board in swing states. But three-quarters of the seats that flipped in 2018 were drawn by 
uh, courts or commissions. Yeah. So the oh, yeah. the gerrymandered seats did not flip at all. Uh, North Carolina is still ten mm. three. Ohio is still twelve four. Wisconsin still five three. Um, and if you look at the state level. Um, and it's those state legislatures in all of those places that are going to have the power to draw these maps again in 2021 if the Supreme Court uh, does not step up. The gerrymander held strong in all of those states as well. Right. Uh, and, and, Chris, that's one area where I think, and you, uh, you and I both saw it, the Democrats lost sight of what was important when it comes to governor's races and state legislative races. No, that's exactly right. And it's one of the reasons why when Tom Perez became chair of the DNC, he says, look, we're going to start winning elections from the school board to the Senate to the White House. I mean, we have not we haven't even created the um, uh, the recruitment process for those races. And we haven't even, you know, until Eric Holder decided to get into this, we haven't even started figuring, hey, you know, we need to start winning the auditor race in certain states or the yeah. secretary of state. Because <laughs> these w- when you end up getting disagreements, mm-hmm. these are the people that are the tiebreakers. The and, auditor and, in Ohio breaks the tie on the yeah. maps. Yeah. And, and I don't think people have quite figured that out. I, the other state I think about is the state I live in, which is Virginia. I think about 2017, Ralph Northam wins by like, what, eight points. And then we show up with like 49, 50, we lose the, the, yeah, the coin yeah. flip. And, you know, Medicaid expansion ends up happening, but it only happens because we got a couple of Republicans to flip. But that should not have even been a close call in, the, in that 2017 legislative race. And that's right. what the, redistricting did around the country is it built <laughs> this huge wall that Democrats needed 56, 57 percent of the vote in all of these states to even get close to 50 percent of the seats. And that is a tall order in competitive states. Yeah, right. So. I'm also really interested in um, related to this, and that is the Electoral College. Now, Elizabeth Warren's the first one maybe to raise that issue. Um, The idea of a a constitutional amendment, as much as I think it would be great, I think it's somewhat remote. But there is this national popular vote. And last week, (laughs) Maine became, now they only have four electoral votes, right? But the state Senate, I don't think think the Assembly has done it yet, but the state Senate voted to put Maine on the side of the national popular vote. Is this, it, is this going to happen, David? What's your take? It's really exciting, right? So, I mean, if you can get 270 yeah, yeah. electoral votes Enough to states say, to add up to 270. we will do this, then I'm sure you will then see legal challenges to whether or not right. this compact is constitutional. But, I mean, it's a really exciting possibility. I mean, the winner uh, of the popular vote ought to be the president of the... I was uh, I was a Democratic state chair of California when the two guys who started this and I forget the yeah. one from professor from Stanford who invented the scratch off lottery ticket. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. What's his name? Do you remember his name? Uh, John. Oh, that's a blast from the past. Yeah. He he really invented the, yes, the scratch, scratch off, off lottery, lottery ticket? ticket. Yeah. No kidding. But anyhow, he so he was this a smart guy, very yes. smart guy. But this character was sort of come around and he had this crazy idea. You know, everybody sort of thought, oh well, this is. And and then, but then they thought, no, well, maybe we ought to think about that. And now, look where he is. It's, so with Maine, it would be, I think, one eighty. It's one eighty three. We're now, getting I close. Believe. I think that there's a road to about two thirty, two thirty five, and then it starts to get a lot harder to imagine kind of where the other. I don't states know. It seems to me if you get to two thirty five, right? Chris, Don't we still have this kind of faithless elector issue, though? <laughs> I mean, and periodically, there's always oh. a, there's always a handful of people who right. don't do what they're supposed to do, and you could sort of see that happening more wildly in this scenario. Yeah, what but, a mess. <laughs> no, but if you get to two thirty-five or so, you get that close. I could see, you know, you, 
You just have to find it's like the at state the floor of the convention. If you get close to mm-hmm. having yeah. the 270, you know, people start climbing on board just to be with a winner. It would be interesting to test the constitutionality of that that proposal. I'd love to watch it. Well, although on this court, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, I mean, the Electoral College is part of the Constitution, but but also just the fact that you need 270 votes. If you get the 270, okay, I guess you could make an argument either way. But uh, I mean, I you do wonder, I mean, but for those 70,000 votes in 2016 in Wisconsin, yeah. Michigan, Pennsylvania, we wouldn't be having these arguments. I mean, we used right, to think, right. we used to th- remember that there was a blue wall that we thought would give us a permanent electoral advantage. Well, it's also the, the second time. Don't remind me of the blue wall. <laughs> oh, man. There's so many times we made that argument about the blue wall, right? Well, we now need to re- recreate the wall in a different place, and it needs to start in Arizona and Georgia and other places. So. Well, maybe it has. I mean, if you look at. I mean, the in last some sense, around, again, I, I, Nevada I mean, and Arizona, yeah, I mean, places we didn't. Uh, oh, David, let me ask you this. I mean, does okay. the demographic changes in our country overcome gerrymandering? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's going to take a long time, but certainly the gerrymandering is meant to stave off the, the demographic yeah. uh, changes right. in this country. Very good. You hit that answer really quick because <laughs> you can hear the music knowing we're almost out of time. It's uh, David Daly. Uh, follow you uh, at Dave Daly 3 Yes. And Chris Liu on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Liu, L-U. And that's it for today. Have a great this Tuesday, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Press show.